Thanks for listening to The Career Planning Show, hosted by Alex Rishkanu and sponsored by Staples Studio. You can listen to a new episode every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform where podcasts are played. If you'd like to ask a question, please submit it at www.rascanu.com forward slash The Career Planning Show. The Career Planning Show went through a hiatus for two and a half months, but now we're back to help you plan and develop your career. On the 24th episode of the podcast, we feature the interview we conducted with Mark Federman earlier this summer. We walk through Mark's career journey, talk about Marshall McLuhan's work, discuss career development scenarios and strategies, and reflect on what effects you may want to create in the world. An experienced coach, mentor, organizational therapist, educator, and author, Mark has developed a unique understanding of individuals in their workplaces and of organizations seeking to find ways to bring out the best in their people. Mark enables the possibility of an alternative future by leaders, organizations, and individuals. Mark completed a PhD specialized in adult education and community development at the University of Toronto, and, in addition to his private practice, he is an adjunct professor at the University of Guelph-Humber in the Psychology Department, and at Schulich School of Business at York University. Before COVID, Mark was a West Coast Swing Salsa and Blues dancer, and a Salsa dance instructor, and the co-host of Sidewalk Salsa, a free open-air dance party in Midtown Toronto throughout the summer. Learn more about Mark Federman's work at reengagementrealized.com and find him on LinkedIn by searching for Dr. Mark Federman. Welcome to the Career Planning Show. Our guest today is Mark Federman. How are you, Mark? I'm great. Thank you very much, Alex. Well, thank you so much for making the time to be with us on the Career Planning Show. Mark, let's start with um, you walking us through your career journey so far. Well, thank you for asking that question because it's a, a very unusual, and I know a lot of people have unusual career trajectories today, so maybe you can relate. It started in a um, gym changing room in grade 11. Hmm. And, um, and one of my buddies uh, said to me, hey, there's this really cool course called um, you know, computer science. Now this was way back in the, you know, in the, in the late, the early 1970s, actually late 60s, mm-hmm. when computers were like brand new. He says, it, I, he says, I think it'll be a, a gas. So let's take it. So I took it. And I got really interested in, in computer-ish stuff, which is so, so not like today. And um, that led me to, uh, to apply to engineering science at the University of Toronto in um, what we today would call computer engineering but in those days, it didn't have a name. Mm. And so I learned hardware, I learned software and programming. Uh, again, very, very primitive compared to you know, today's world. And I graduated um, with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Computer Engineering. Um, again, it was computer option of engineering science at U of T. Uh, I then had enough of school and decided to get a job. Many of my friends went on to grad school at that time. I got a job. Uh, and I worked my way in the uh, information technology industry, 
um, working in a uh, shared processing company, which is at the time computers were so expensive, people had to, had to share them. And uh, so I worked at a company that provided those services, then went on to work for a computer hardware manufacturer, uh, not IBM, but another big three letter name company. And um, went through that company and, and essentially had a, a career of about 20 plus years, uh, reaching a very senior level, at which point um, I had a heart attack. And the corporate life was uh, really got to me with the stress and the travel, et cetera. I, I took a extended leave from the corporate world. And um, at that, during that time, I came to a realization that had, God forbid, I not made it um, well, at, at that time, I, was, I, was, I had just turned 40, um, nothing I did would have mattered. Um, mm. Nobody would have missed me. I had no effect on the world whatsoever. And that was profoundly depressing. It really was. And so it was during that time that I resolved that the next time that I would, you know, might be called upstairs to come home, um, that that wouldn't be the case, that I was going to do something that actually touched people's lives. And I didn't know what that was going to be. Um, I, you know, tried a whole bunch of different things that, that totally failed. Failure, 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 failure. The universe was conspiring to have me fail. It was amazing. <laughs> like, you know, it was I just like right up to do something to get a business started. And then just a random thing happened, uh, including I was about to close like a, 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 an over a million dollar deal, in, you know, as an independent business person. It was going to be great. And the client died suddenly. It turned out he was one of the first victims of AIDS. He was one of the first victims of HIV AIDS. And of course, that put the kibosh on the whole thing. I didn't realize it at the time, uh, what it was. And um, I uh, had a, just a random thing. A newspaper blew over the fence of my, my home, my backyard. And, and it was the horoscope page. I never look at horoscopes, but it said, um, take the next opportunity, you won't have a third chance. I'm going, third chance? What was the second chance? <laughs> and so I just glanced across the page and I saw this little notice for an event at the McLuhan Program in Culture and Technology at the University of Toronto. I said, okay, this must be the chance. I went to that, it was totally random. There was a bunch of people talking about this crazy guy called Marshall McLuhan, who I sort of knew because of just cultural reference. Of course, he was the person who came up with the medium is the message, the idea of the global village. And uh, then I went and sort of got involved with the McLuhan program and found uh, McLuhan's work fascinating. And in particular, his first book, The, the Understanding Media, um, in that book, which was published in 1964, which hmm. is three years before the first two computers ever exchanged like one byte of data between them. Hmm. That happened in 67. In this book, he published in 64, he made predictions about the world of what we now know as the internet. It was the world of you know, like 1997, uh, what was going on then. And it was remarkably accurate in terms of what the world would be like. And I said, wow, this guy in 1964 predicted the world in 1997. If I could figure out how he did it, I'd make a million bucks. Well, in fact, I did figure out how he did it. I wrote a book called McLuhan for Managers. You know, the book was published by Pearson. And in it, I took McLuhan's method and just made it very explicit and saying, here's how McLuhan thought. Here is how he predicted or anticipated the future. And uh, that got me an invitation into the McLuhan program. 
Yuki. I, I played the role of chief strategist there for a bunch of years. I taught, I spoke around the world, talking about the world that was unfolding and what was happening and the effects in that world. Um, while I was at the McLuhan program, um, I wondered about sort of how McLuhan's thinking would apply to the roles we play in workplaces. I realized that would be worth a master's degree. And so I went and applied for a master's degree at Boise at U of T, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, mm -hmm. in the Department of Adult Education and Counseling Psychology in the Workplace Learning and Change Research Unit. And um, <clears throat> I got admission there to do a master's and I studied a very different take on the roles we play in workplaces and the roles we play in terms of the effects we create. And that actually turns out to be pretty significant as, as we see in a moment. Um, I then stayed on to do a PhD uh, because I came up with a really interesting question, which, which was this. Um, all of the organizations that we know and love, but mostly don't, um, are shaped like factories. They're bureaucratic, they're administratively controlled, they're hierarchically managed. And whether you talk about schools or governments or corporations or you name it, they're all shaped like factories. Yes. And they're all sort of run like factories. And one thing I learned from McLuhan is that every time we change the dominant way we interact with one another throughout 3000 years of history, all of the institutions that structure society turn inside out and upside down. And we were going through this revolution of communication, the internet, right? The ability to communicate and connect with anybody, anywhere, instantaneously, multiple ways. And I said, the institutions structure of society are undergoing this inside out and upside down thing. And that would include organizations. And so I asked a really simple question. What is a, a model, a way we're thinking about organizations that corresponds to the way we are today rather than the way we were yesterday? That led me to uh, my doctoral studies in which I created a, a brand new fundamental theory of organization and all the consequences for management and leadership and daily practices that I now incorporate in, in, my, uh, in my practice. After I finished my PhD, um, I uh, applied to just a, a ton of academic positions around the world and discovered this little thing called ageism because I'm, I'm not exactly a 30 year old new grad. I have a couple of years behind me. Um, and so ageism in the academy is a real thing, unfortunately. And so I gave up after 70 odd rejections. And um, even though I had teaching experience and publishing and you know, academic articles and all the right stuff, um, I said, if there's a job out there that wants me, they'll find me, at which point it did. And uh, the moment I released the, the, the obsession with getting a job, had the intention and it found me. And so um, I ended up hooking up with this a private graduate school here in Toronto that had a master of psychology program. They also had a coaching program professional coaching program. And they invited me to create a, uh, what would be a master of contemporary leadership, which is not an MBA. It's not a management thing, but on leadership. And the question there was like, for a contemporary leader, what do they need to know? What do they need to be able to do? And, and how do they show up? How are they you know, in act, acting in the world? Developed this uh, program. Um, I was appointed to a senior academic role in that organization. Um, I realized, by the way, that I had been doing uh, coaching informally um, 
based on their coaching program, um, I said, wow, I've been doing this. And so um, that was sort of interesting. And um, when the government was about to grant approval to offer this degree, which requires a ton of money, the school came to me and said, sorry, we don't have the money. It's been nice knowing you. And by the way, you can take your intellectual property because we'll be able to use it. And so I retained all of the intellectual property of this Master of Contemporary Leadership, which was you know, a really cool program developed in a way that was collaborative and using all sorts of very modern techniques of engagement and so on that I now use in my, in my practice anyway. Um, and then it was like, okay, what do I do? And uh, there was a bunch of things that I could do, a bunch of things I could teach, a bunch of things that I could do commercially and so on. And uh, my wife said to me, you know, you're really good at this coaching stuff and you really enjoy it and it's really fulfilling. And more important, it is this, you know, you aren't going to leave this world again without touching lives in a, in a profound way. Mm -hmm. So it lines up with everything that you want. Why don't you just do that? Because uh, you're doing it anyway. And so why don't you do it like officially? And, um, and it was one of those, you know, slap your forehead. I could have had a V8 moments. Um, and I said, sure, that makes perfect sense. So I, I repackaged myself um, as a re-engagement realized. Reengagementrealized.com is the website. Um, and it's about people re-engaging with you know, their careers, with their workplaces. It's about organization re-engaging with their employees in ways that are consistent with the world today, 21st century practices. So we do a lot of work in, in appreciative management practices, positive leadership with individuals. Um, I, I work with people who are, who are in transition. I work with people who are changing roles, whether of their own volition or it's forced upon them. I work with people who are leaving organizations to open their own practice. I work with people who um, you know, have moved from a senior management role into a, you know, a C-level, a true leadership role, and to rethink how do we make that transition from you know, a, a managerial focus, operational focus to true leadership. Um, I remember coming across a, an idea that was a brilliant, I think. It said, managers drive the train, uh, leaders lay the track. And so it's how you think about that. I also work with people much earlier in their career, figuring out, okay, so what am I going to do? Like, what, what, like, of all the options that are available to me, how do I figure out where to start? And I help people through that, even at mid-career, where they say, you know, I've done this and this. I sort of fell into my career by accident. It's not really what I wanted to do, but I've got all this time invested, but I'm, I'm happy and blah, blah. What do I do now? Um, and the other thing is I have a, a subspecialty uh, that is really important to me. And that is people who have experienced workplace trauma, mm. people who have had bullies as managers, people who have had horrible experiences. They lost their job on the so-called performance improvement program. You know, that's the, the slippery, you know, slope out the door when they just fabricate, you know, horrible stuff against you and, and arrange for your dismissal. Um, and people who have, I had one client, for example, who, was one of the top avionics engineers in the world. An amazing, brilliant, brilliant man. He had a 30-year career. He ended up with a such a horrible, toxic boss, and and a just an arranged like out the door of the company he was working with. And he came to me totally broken, and he said, "You know, I've always liked photography. Maybe I'll just do that." And we started telling me stories of his careers. I said, "Holy mackerel! You have so much." 
knowledge and skill and expertise in what to offer the industry. Like this is a man who saved the airline industry hundreds of millions of dollars annually by solving a problem that was a problem right across the board. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, and he decided he was going to solve it. And he did like hundreds of millions of dollars. Annually. So this guy, he was going to take up photography. And uh, so we got him, you know, I helped him get back in his game. And uh, now he's doing some very, very cool stuff. Um, you know, looking at how you create video instructions. Because again, the photography and the video. How you create video instructions that you give to mechanics out in the middle of God knows where when a plane is there and the avionics are broken and they have no expertise. And there he is, you download it and you have video instructions on how to fix this plane. It's just the coolest thing ever. Um, so it's stuff like that. Um, and so that's where I am today. I teach at, um, I'm an adjunct professor at York at the Schuett Business School in the management of, uh, in the Master of Supply Chain Management Program. I teach business communication and team dynamics in a very cool way. Um, an adjunct at Guelph Humber, where I teach the psychology of persuasion. I love that as well and supervise a virtual practicum in org uh, psychology. So that's me. I love hearing your story. I feel like we can just turn this episode into listening to, to, to the kind of experiences that you've had and the journey that you've had. I absolutely love finding ways to help people wherever they are in their career and listening to someone who's been doing it with much more expertise, a lot of, of thinking around good methodologies to put into place while helping people who have gone through trauma in the workplace or individuals who, um, you know, are looking for an opportunity to re-energize their careers and, and, and plug into the workplace exactly where they see themselves and they're skilled to be is, is just fascinating. Um, I wonder if we could take a, a scenario where someone is uh, midway through their career, maybe they're um, in their 30s or 40s, um, they have developed a certain level of expertise um, in, uh, in the area that they studied academically, the area where they've been for 10 plus years. And what they're finding is that while they have developed this expertise over the years, when COVID-19 pandemic occurred and they, there were massive layoffs, they ended up without a job. And now over the, the last year or so, you know, they were supporting family members, they've been at home, but now they're, they're looking to go back into that area of expertise, um, but they're looking for the right opportunity, um, something that, that makes a lot of sense for them. What would you say are some important questions that someone should ask themselves? Is there one question, two questions? Are there certain things that should be top of mind for this person as they're looking to go back into that area where they have expertise, but they're trying to make the right choice for the rest of their career. Yeah, that's a great, great question, Alex. And, you know, that's something that, that is an issue that I wrestled with for a you know, good part of the last year. And, and, and my wife and I had long, long, long conversations around what could, you know, I do from where I sit. Uh, and so, you know, I'll, I'll give some you know, specifics um, and also share uh, something that I actually developed that, that's just launched. It's called the Reinvention Project. And particularly, it's um, 
the 21 day unstuck your life challenge. So for people who are faced with like I'm stuck right now, or I've been stuck for a long time, it's 21 days of, of daily things to do, specific things to do that um, will get you moving and get you thinking about all of the questions that you've just asked me. What should I be asking myself? What should I be thinking about? How do I start? Where do I start? How do I really get myself back in the game? Because if I've been out of work for a long time, you know, my, my head is probably not in the right place. And so how do I really get back in the game? And so I developed this program based on all of my you know, best coaching, most effective coaching tools and techniques and methods that patches all up together in this 21 day program. So it's a very important question. And I think it's important to be launched now as people are starting to you know, get back into the workplace. So where I always start, where I always start with anybody is who are you at your best? To go back to say, think of some times when you were like firing on all cylinders, when, when you were just like, oh my gosh, if I could bottle this feeling and take a swig of it every morning, like I would be like super person, right? It, that's where we start. And mm. so we always, always, always want to remind ourselves who we are at our best and what are the circumstances and the conditions and the interactions and the environment that help us to become our best, to help us enact our best, right? So we start there. We then say, okay, let's look ahead. Let's imagine that we are, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to get to like far future, but let's imagine we are, oh, let's take a grisly one. We are, we are a ghost listening to our own eulogy. This is an idea I, I, I borrowed from uh, David Brooks, who's an op-ed writer at the New York Times, and he has this very boring book called The, the Road to Character. Um, I don't necessarily recommend the book. I thought it extremely boring, but it's very instructive. We came up with this great idea of a eulogy CV. And um, you know, we focus a lot of time on our own curriculum vitae, our own resumes, our own accomplishments, et cetera, during our work career. We very rarely think about what people will say about our eulogy. What is the document we would hand to somebody who's writing our eulogy to say, about the things that are really, truly meaningful in our life. And so we think ahead to listening to our own eulogy and what people are going to talk about that's so important that with the contribution we've made to the world, who have we touched and how have we touched them? So that's what I want people to focus on. It's another mm -hmm. way of looking at that that's less grisly. You know, if you imagine yourself um, you know, late in life and your grandchildren, great-grandchildren or you know, grandnieces and nephews, whoever you have in your family, come to you and say, you know, grandpa, grandma, you know, great uncle, great aunt, whoever, you know, you've lived such a long time, um, you know, and, and here we are 10 years old. What can you tell us that like things were like, and, you know, when you look back on your life to you're back to where we are, what did you accomplish that you're so proud of? What like, what makes you most proud? And by the way, you can't just say like you, my grandchildren, I'm most proud of you. Like that's cheating. You think about what you've done in your life. And so if we think ahead to that time, retrospectively, when we look back from the end of our life, what will we want to have accomplished? What will we want to be remembered for? What we really, really, really want to do in this world. And uh, however you get there, that's what we want to focus on. That's our, you know, will define our trajectory. And it's not a goal so much uh, as an intention to keep, you know, to, like a North Star to guide us as we as we go go into our life 
And so when we start off with where, what we are really good at, and then we create that intention that I describe as a dream. What is the dream of what that's going to look like when we have accomplished it? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to smell like? What's going to be going on around you? What's going to be different then than now? And we really construct this dream. And I say dream rather than vision because a dream, when we're dreaming, like we're present. A dream is real. It's visceral. Like we feel dreams, whether they're great dreams, we wake up feeling, oh my gosh, this is amazing, or a nightmare where we wake up terrified. A dream is so real. A vision, on the other hand, is like, oh, it's, our, it's like the, we see it in the far future, right? It's something that is ahead of us. It's coming. It's in the future. And you're never accountable for it because it's always in the future. And the future is always in the future. It never, so it never really manifests in the presence. That's why I like dreams. So we construct this dream of an incredible life, an incredible accomplishments that you know, is, is, is out in front of us. We start from where we are today, and then we say, okay, here I am, who I am, the skills, experiences, the everything I am. And I've got this dream that represents the intention. And then we say, okay, I'm going to live into that dream. What's my first step? What do I do that's something that I accomplished today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, totally latest? What can I do? And then you say, okay, what's my next first step on that trajectory? And what's my next first step? And what's my next first step after that? And um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen between each day's first step and the intention. Of course, those are the other tools and techniques and stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's the basic idea. You think about not a goal, not a particular objective. You don't want to say, gee, I'd like to become a garbage collector. I'd love to become a pool hustler. I'd love to become you know, a massage therapist, a, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, whatever, whatever, those are all fine. But what I like to say is what effects do you want to create in your world? Because if you think about the effects, the way you touch people, the, what I call the tactility, right? Sense of touch. When you think about that, you would say, okay, there's a lot of ways you can do it. So I look at my own career. I wanted to become a university professor. I love teaching. I love working with students. And you know, I still do. Believe me, adjunct professors do not do it for the money. That's for sure. Um, but I love the students. I really do. I love inspiring them. I love making the opening up a, a, an opportunity, a, a dream for them. To say, you can achieve more than you thought you could. And to hold that out in front of them and say, see, you did this in my course. And that was tough to do. And you did it. That's amazing. And that shows you you can do these amazing things. And so when you create this intention, Mine was to be a university professor. I said, okay, why is it that I want to become a university professor? What is it about university professor, this thing that is important to me? Well, it enables me to touch you know, people's lives. And that's a total privilege. It allows me to touch people's lives at a critical time for them. It allows me to influence them to be able to do things they never thought they could do, to give them a, you know, an inspiration, something to, to aspire towards. It um, is intellectually stimulating and it allows me to really like keep thinking and you know, develop new tools and techniques and skills, et cetera. And I go, okay, those are the things that really are important to me. How else can I accomplish those things? How else can I affect those things in my life? And say, well, I could, don't have to be a university professor. I could be a coach, for example, mm -hmm. which, is, which is, you know, this path. Um, you know, I could uh, hook up with, um, you know, different uh, um, 
you know, executive ed or, you know, continuing ed programs, which I've also done. Um, and um, in doing all of this, I just you know, make myself available. And lo and behold, you know, a couple of university jobs did find me that particularly were interested in, in my unique approaches to it. And so I get the fun of working with students, get the fun of you know, actually doing the performance of teaching, and I get to help you know, people aspire. And I do it in multiple ways across my life. And the other thing, you know, I, I, uh, I'm also a dancer. I was a dancer before COVID. And um, you know, I teach uh, salsa dancing to absolute beginners. And, um, and again, same thing. I allow people to do things they never thought they'd be capable of doing that will change their life. Um, and so I do that in salsa dancing. And, you know, before COVID every summer, we had this event called Sidewalk Salsa, where at the corner Brewer and Spadina in Toronto, uh, we would host an open air free salsa party. We've been doing it for 15 years. Hopefully next year, we'll be able to get back to it once we're God willing, whole COVID free. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And we actually teach people to dance who've never danced before right there on the street uh, at Blue and Spadina. So, you know, that's what I'm about. And I would, but the point here is you're able to create the effects that are important to you of the thing that you sort of point to in many different ways. And by having the dream relative to the effects you create, the intention that you want to bring to your life, you are then able to say, how many different ways can I bring that about and be able to find a path towards at least one, if not many of those ways. I really appreciate um, you sharing about um, your, your framework and uh, the ways in which someone is able to accomplish their dreams, some of the steps that they can take, the two uh, visualization exercises, the eulogy and uh, and uh, the one where someone um, comes up with a specific dream and then pursues that, I, um, I find your approach to be really helpful. One other question that came to mind as you were speaking about teaching students at uh, your university, uh, at Guelph Humber, um, what would you say is the number one question that students ask when it comes to career development and how they should map out their careers and how do you answer that particular question? Great, great question. At, uh, at Schulich, I teach uh, master's students who are in a career already, and they're taking this particular program, Master of Supply Chain Management, to enhance their career. So I don't get career questions from them so much. Um, and, uh, and for anyone in supply chain, or interested in supply chain, that is truly an outstanding program not being paid by York to promote it, but it is, uh, it, it is a unique program in the world and, and just an amazing, amazing opportunity for people in that profession. <clears throat> Guelph Humber, I do get a lot of career questions from students, <clears throat> particularly when they find out I do this work. So a lot of students say, you know, the most common question is, so how do I get into grad school? Um, or, you know, how do, I, how do I develop the beginnings of this career towards something to do with psychology and whether it's interclinical psychology or uh, industrial organizational psychology, which is sort of roughly you know, my connection. How do I do it? Where do I go? So this is really for people at the beginning of their career, completing an undergrad, looking to get into grad school. And, and my advice is this. Um, there, there is a precept that says, you don't apply to a grad school program, you apply to a professor. Hmm. 
And, and so what I advise uh, undergrad students to do starting in at the end of their third year is to research programs that they're really interested in. And then look up the faculty of that program and find you know, one or two members of that faculty whose research uh, you're interested in. I mean, truly interested in like something that you can you know, just get your teeth into and uh, try to arrange a meeting, write to them. Um, there are strategic times in which to write to them and times when you not, don't want to write to them. Um, so summer might be a good time. Um, it varies by individual. Some people have the time, other people are working on their own stuff. Uh, do not write to them at the beginning of semester in September. Do not write to them in November when you're closing up you know, uh, the semester and we are piled up like to the hilt with marking. Um, so uh, October is a great time to write to them and equivalently sometime like February-ish. Uh, Again, March is horrible because end of term marking. And uh, request a meeting and express, you say, here, you know, I'm interested in looking at your program. Here's what I'm interested in pursuing in terms of a, perhaps research. I see it aligns with what you're doing. Make sure you read up on that professor's research so you can speak intelligently about when they say, oh, what is it about my research, my work that you like that you can say something intelligent? Um, you know, I read your paper on such and so, I really found it fascinating because of this, because I'm interested in that. That just scores you huge points um, because professors are nothing if not like self-absorbed in their own work. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and so make a personal connection um, because when the professor's sitting there and, and uh, they're essentially looking at all the applicants and saying, okay, who do we wanna bring in? Who do I think I could work with? Who do I think I could develop as a professor? Mm -hmm. You want to be you want to be top of mind with that individual, and um, then uh, make your application focused on that particular you know angle of, of research so it's applicable. The worst thing you can do is apply to a, a program with a proposed you know area of research that nobody there is really doing. Uh, so say, gee, this is really interesting, but there's nobody here to support that student. So you you know you blow it. Um, the other thing I would say is um, apply widely. Universities have like between five and 20 times the applicants for each graduate position open. And so you really have to diversify. I had one student whose undergrad thesis I supervised. Um, I must have provided him 20 to 25 reference letters. Wow. Uh, and I only, I mean, I refer, you know, my, the students that I work with for thesis, um, I, you know, you know, they often use me for, for reference. And he did somewhere between 20 and 25, uh, right across North America, a few in Europe. And uh, out of that, he received two acceptances. So those are your odds. It's like one in 10 chance, right? So, um, and he got one of his you know, preferred schools. Um, and um, so, you know, apply widely. Uh, be very strategic about how you apply and what you're writing about in terms of your um, um, uh, research program. Now, the other thing I say to students is it's often the case that you need a master's degree these days to qualify even for entry-level positions because competition for jobs is so great. Uh, and that's a sad reality. When, you know, when I was in, in school, you could get a great job out of high school without a university degree. 
and a bachelor degree in university was considered just amazing, right? Never mind anything higher. Uh, and then it switched to you need a bachelor's degree. These days you need a master's degree. So going from an underground bachelor to a master's degree is sometimes necessary. On the other hand, my advice is get a few years of, of work experience after your undergrad. Understand what the real world is like outside of the school environment, because when you come up through a bachelor's degree, most people have been in school for like 16 years. So it's almost their entire life. So I would say, just find out what the world is like, number one. Number two, it helps to have some money banked. And so on that first job out of your undergrad, whatever it may be, whatever entry level, menial, whatever you get, just bank your money because you'll need it when you go to grad school. Then the other thing I say is the undergrad is a way of finding out what you don't like. Remember, you're making your university choice, your undergrad university choice, you know, when you're all of like 16 years old. And so you have a very limited scope of experiences and stuff when you're, when you're like a middle teenager. At the end of university, you'll find, you'll, you're exposed to a whole bunch of things that you thought you liked but didn't. You'll try out some stuff that you discover, wow, this is so cool. Um, so let that sit, let that marinate a little bit, go out into the real world, discover some interesting questions, and then come into a master's program with some really good questions. That will help guide you into something that is at least more purposeful, more thoughtful. At that point, after your master's, um, if you have aspirations for even higher education, that where again, the PhD is not a, a prerequisite for getting that job. In other words, if you're going to, into genomics research, you're going to need a PhD and postdocs and stuff. But if you're doing something where it doesn't, it's not like a, a job requirement to have a PhD, go out and work for at least 10 years and experience the real world. And when you are out there, seek a question that needs answering that nobody's answered. Or if there's an answer, it's been answered not so well. And when you come back into your graduate school, into the doctoral program, or even the master's, you're coming there with a particular purpose. When I was in grad school, I went back as a very mature student. I did my, my, my master's and doctorate in my late 40s and early 50s, but not too late. And it was a wonderful experience because it was a total break from, you know, quote, real life. And it, it allowed me to bring a, you know, my, a sort of a lifetime of experience into my work. And my work was richer because of it. I went to school with people who were um, you know, harm reduction outreach counselors in real life. And they came to get some you know, more in-depth theory and training and technique and so on to work with marginalized communities. And mm -hmm. Obviously people you know, in, who, who need that sort of harm reduction service. And uh, they came in for a couple of years did some really deep dives into some very innovative techniques, then went back out to the field at such a higher level of effectiveness for their clients. Um, and I went to school with people who, um, you know, who were working with, um, you know, psych survivors, working with uh, incarcerated people, working with, um, you know, children who were marginalized, working with obviously indigenous communities, um, in you know, creating indigenous knowledge and using indigenous knowledge for healing, for community building, for you know, all the issues we're hearing about today. People who came with life experience and were able to do grad school 
with that perspective. In my undergrad course this year, it's a third year undergrad course. I had a woman who was 40 and um, she was working um, in, in the field of uh, 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 exploited children and children who were sex trafficked. And uh, she came into my course with such an intention of how she was going to apply the learning in persuasion to understand how child sex traffickers exploit and persuade these young people. And she took all of that knowledge, she wrote a brilliant paper, studying it, looking at exactly that, and then take that knowledge back into her work. Um, and um, you know, that in, intention inspired the learning and made it so relevant and so real. And consequently, it was a much better experience. So that's my you know, very specific advice at sort of every decision point along the, you know, from a university student into career. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was definitely in depth and very helpful. What's next for Mark Federman? Oh, what's next? I have a book that um, I'm probably two thirds of the way through. I was hoping to get it out um, you know, early in the summer, but we're already early in the summer and it's not out. I've been working on another project. It is also important. Um, so the book is called The Reinvention Project, Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And it is um, you know, a book about people who are doing exactly that, looking to reinvent themselves. And it talks about you know, much of what we, we've spoken about in this, in this conversation and more. And it really encapsulates the work I've been doing over the past more than decade you know, with my coaching clients, looking at people who are reinventing themselves in, in various ways. And, all the you know, tools and techniques and methods and things to think about on how to do it in just a wonderful, appreciative, strengths-based way of transforming the story you tell about yourself into the story that you will want to tell about yourself and therefore changing your life. So that's the book coming out. Look for it late summer, early fall. <clears throat> I also have this 21-day uh, Unstuck Your Life Challenge. Um, I've just finished the beta group uh, and some people um, that there's um, one person in particular who has been stuck in her life and, and extremely dissatisfied for a very, very, very long time, who has made just amazing breakthroughs uh, in just the 21 days. So it's um, a very effective program uh, and it's a, you know, a condensation of some of the, like the highlight reel of my practice and my experience with my clients. That's available now. Um, and uh, you can get it from uh, my websites, uh, reengagementrealized.com, uh, which is my sort of main business website, and my new website, which is reinventionproject.org.org, um, that is focused on this whole reinvention work. On Facebook, reinvent project on Facebook. Uh, you can join me there, and links to the program are in all three places. Um, so I'm uh, going to be developing out that reinvention project work. Um, that's uh, that's the, on the immediate horizon. In in future, um, I've I've uh, always wanted to you know create experiences and uh, sort of retreat experiences that are really just very different than the you know the usual like stand up with a flip chart brainstorm retreat session. And so um, you know I think. My next longer term project will be doing two versions of that, one for individuals 
to individual retreats, reinvention project retreat. Um, and so that is not yet scheduled, um, but that's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And so that will come you know, in, in future. And then a, uh, a special form of leadership retreat for senior leaders where senior leaders will bring a real life project from a real life you know, complex problem, wicked problem from their organization. They will be working with other leaders who are in non-competing sectors and they will use some of the most advanced techniques and complexity theory, which is again an area that I play in, um, to look at dealing with these wicked problems uh, and learning the, the, the science of complexity thinking in um, very innovative ways um, to uh, help them uh, figure out a, a path to navigate uh, these wicked problems in their own organizations. And uh, there's two sort of two versions. One will be people from different organizations, again, non-competing sectors. Another one will be in-house strategy where senior leadership retreat will be using these advanced techniques in, in, in a very different way to solve wicked problems within their own organization. So that's uh, two aspirational projects for me in the future that are, that are you know, stretch for me, uh, things that I've played with, um, that I'm sort of looking to, to create something really wonderful. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights, sharing your career story and so many helpful career development insights. I really appreciate having you on the Career Planning Show, Mark. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was uh, just wonderful to have this opportunity to share this with, uh, with your audience. Thank you. We recorded the Career Planning Show in the podcast booth inside the Staples Studio co-working space located in Midtown Toronto, Canada. Staples Studio not only offers a safe space to work with desks, offices, private phone booths and meeting rooms, they are also connected to the Staples Store, where they have everything you need under one roof. With locations across Canada, Staples Studio is a community to help you work, learn, and grow. To learn about their co-working space locations, pricing, and amenities, visit studio.staples.ca and book a virtual tour. Thank you for listening to The Career Planning Show, hosted by Alex Roshkanu and sponsored by Staple Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show, rate it, and share it with a friend.